Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey. Hey, man. Welcome to another episode of Film Chat. So, Danny and I have been at the London Film Festival a bit this week. The press screenings have started. Yes. Very exciting for me as I've not ever done such a legitimate film critic-esque thing. Old hat for Danny, who was there last year. I'm very jaded about it, to be honest with you. Um, Danny, what's your highlight of it so far? You've seen more movies than me. You've seen, like, 11 films or something. The highlight is Loveless, the Andre Zvigintsev movie, the director of Leviathan. Another kind of bleak domestic drama, which is reflecting some sort of part of Russian modern culture. In this case, I think Russia's relationship to Ukraine. Very, very good. Similar to Leviathan. Quite bleak. Super compelling. Yeah, Leviathan was the shit. So I'm, I'm excited for that one. I'm going to try to catch one of the public screenings. And then um, yesterday I saw this terrible film, Cargo. Total, total pantyhose, man. Tell, tell us about it. It's a debut, it's, uh, debut feature, right? Debut, the first and possibly last feature by some guy about three Dutch fishermen whose father dies and they all have problems and it just... It's 90 minutes long, but it feels like 90 days long. But, like, how did this end up? How did this get in, you know? Like, did someone pull some strings? Or is, it, is this guy being hailed as a talent? Or I have no idea. I just... I don't know. Maybe... Just uh, randomly in there. Maybe just in there. Did you get a sense of how the room felt about it? Or did you get any Twitter reactions afterwards? Or Well, I think people... Because it was the last film of the day. And I think people were sort of a bit tired going in. So the film had to kind of work a bit hard to... Yeah. And the last just, film of the week. And the last film of the week. So I assume that everyone was just a bit fatigued by it. Yeah. If I'm honest. So one to miss. Don't don't go see, can't go. Yeah. That's not a joke, is it? I know a place where you, should, you shouldn't go. Should no no cargo. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. Great spontaneous humour work there. <laughs> anyway, Sam, what's this uh what's this podcast about? Um glad you asked, Danny. This is a podcast all about Danny Moran. He's a cheeky taxi driver with an even cheekier secret. He's got two wives. What? He manages via a complex schedule to keep each wife hidden from the other. But his routine is upset when he intervenes in a mugging and is knocked unconscious. Both wives report him missing and all sorts of absolutely hilarious hijinks ensue. Great slapstick moments like uh, Neil Morrissey sitting on a cake. Danny Moran stepping on a rake. He gets caught with his, you know, trousers around his ankles and comedically and stuff like that. I've got to tell you, this this podcast is probably the funniest experience you'll ever have listening to it. Um, it's the hi- absolute heights of comedy. Is what I would be saying <laughs> if this was a adaptation of the hysterical 2013 comedy Run for Your Wife, starring Danny Dyer. Instead, it's a deeply serious podcast in which two grown men talk in a very solemn and earnest manner about films. I'm Sam Foster, and joining me, a man whose actual two wives are not Denise Van Outen and the, uh, the other wife, who's the actress who I can't remember the name of. They're just films and great opinions about films. That's me. Danny Moran. Me in a nutshell. Thank you for that, Sam. Uh, Sam, you know, I'm a modern guy. I love films. With female leads. Yeah. Doesn't bother me at all. Not threatened by them. A lot of men are threatened by that. Providing the women in question are manipulated by men for the entirety of the film and suffer a series of horrific ordeals, hopefully culminating in some sort of emotional or psychological breakdown. That's all I'm asking for. <laughs> Luckily, you and I saw two films that kind of fulfilled that criteria. First off, Darren Aronofsky's polarizing allegorical horror film, Mother, starring Jennifer Lawrence. According to critics, it is the worst or best film ever. Thus, true to our contrarian nature, we'll be giving it three stars. Then, we review hit Korean action thriller The Villainess, which features that most tiresome of cliches, a one-shot motorbike sword fight. Get some new ideas, Korea! 
Also, Sam, you reviewed the timey documentary Dispossession, all about the social housing crisis in the UK. I've not seen it myself, but I imagine the lack of social housing negatively affects large swathes of women's lives. So count me on board for that. <laughs> Plus, we discussed the news that the iconic comic book Watchmen has come to the small screen and the news that Taika Waititi is in talks to direct the live action version of Akira all of which should leave me just enough time to pitch my own film called Mother, which is all about a nice woman called Louise Moran, who wanted her son to take her to see Victorian Abdul, but he bailed on her to go see the new Andre Zvigintsev movie instead. It's my most brutally honest work to date. How does that conclude? Sorry, sorry about that, Mum. Like a screaming uh, breakdown where... Uh... Yeah, I came home on Wednesday and the house was just fucking destroyed. <laughs> my mum was just like lying in the middle of a heap. The, just, all the tiles are cracked. She'd broken a diaphragm through screaming. Everything's on fire. Yeah, it was, uh, it was a troubling evening. Yeah. But we're fine now. We patched it up. Yeah, that's nice. All's well that ends well. We're on with the podcast now. Danny, you did some good social media engagement this week. Thank you for that. Not a problem. That's what, that's what the sort of pro podcast do. You posted on Facebook and Twitter. It's a sort of mother-inspired question, I assume. Yes. I'm going to read what you wrote. I'm going to adopt your words as my own. You said, Are there any horror films with a male protagonist who goes through hell to the same extent that female protagonists usually do? Like, is there a male character who is the equivalent of Wendy in The Shining or Jennifer Lawrence in Mother? Only recent horror film I can think of with a male lead is Get Out, but Daniel Kaluuya is a pretty cool customer comparatively. We didn't get any Twitter responses. Fucking idiots follow us on Twitter. Twitter. Useless Twitter people. But we did get some Facebook replies. So there's a bunch of different suggestions. James Andrews suggested Jacob's Ladder. We haven't seen Jacob's Ladder. Not seen it. Can't evaluate that response. Sorry. Joe Borges suggested Sam Neill in Event Horizon. Lewis Britnell suggested Ash from The Evil Dead. Kieran Brunt suggested Pinter's The Birthday Party. Haven't seen that. Sounds like a bit of a left field choice, but perhaps that's true. Judy Dwayne suggested The Boy in Come and See. Or Kurt Russell in The Thing, maybe. Certainly comparable to Ripley and Alien. Uh, the Guy in Society. And Gary Bond in Wake and Fright. Uh, we also have the suggestions of Audition. Paul Sheldon in Misery and possibly Killian Murphy in Sunshine from, respectively, Tim Rogers and Jenny Gulliford. Good, good. Good, good selection. Good, good stuff. Suggested. So, like, how do you evaluate these, Daniel? What do you think? Well, this is when we're, like, unfortunately, this question has revealed our ignorance because there's a bunch of movies we haven't, we seen haven't heard of. Come and see, I think, is a definite... Uh, so this is this, like, Russian, traumatic Russian horror movie. Directed by Ilham... It's like a war film. Ilham Kilnov. That's probably how you pronounce his name. Probably Ilan is, yeah. Killian, something like that. It's like, it's all about this boy who joins a militia in Belarus in, during World War II while the Nazis are carrying out this sort of uh, scorched earth policy in that region. And it's like a, basically a descendant of madness. Turns out if you put a, like a young child in the middle of a horrific war where horrible shit happens to him, he kind of goes nuts, understandably. But yeah, it is a, it's a brilliant film. There's a great... Um, I'm not sure on what magazine, but Ben Wheatley did a sort of his top 20 horror films, and that was on it. And he said, you can always tell if someone's seen Come and See, because if you mention it, their eyes widen slightly, and it's like the sort of, I've seen Come and See. A thousand yards stare. Exactly, yeah. It? Like, you know, you were in a war zone. Yeah, that's one's definitely kind of close to Wendy and the Shining or Jeff Lawrence, and that by the end, it's just like nonstop screaming and horror. Yeah. I thought it's like, it's interesting uh, set of responses. I mean, even though we haven't necessarily seen all these movies, but from what I can tell of them, I think it fits what you're getting at by the fact that these tend to be exceptions to the rule. And it's what um, Jenny Gulford in her comment references the final girl trope. And I looked this up on TV tropes. And it says the term final girl was coined by Carol J. Clover in her 1992 book, Men, Women and Chainsaws, Gender in the Modern Horror Film. A critical examination of slasher movies the character is ultimately the last one left to tell the story so this is a slightly different shape to what you're talking about is it's not necessarily about that like Lars von Trier-esque uh, woman you know put through a nightmare yeah. scenario but it's more like a slasher movie thing where everyone else is killed off except the woman and then she confronts the villain right at the end but obviously they're related and the TV Tropes article goes on to say it's also interesting to note how the final girl can be interpreted in film theory on one hand the character seems to be the living embodiment of stereotypical conservative attitudes of what women should be given that they're often like a virgin or like you know the least promiscuous sure one 
On the other hand, feminists have noticed that through this device, the males in the audience are forced to identify with a woman in the climax of the movie. In practical terms, the makers of a horror film want the victim to experience abject terror at the climax and feel that viewers would reject a film that showed a man experiencing such abject terror. So I think it's interesting that the sort of closest of the answers that we can, you know, of the movies that we've seen <laughs> is the boy in Come and See. Yeah. Because like seeing a boy going through uh, horror and having it's a sort of like icon of innocence who gets like yeah, yeah. or whatever and like men don't fulfill that role as easily as children and women you know in movies exactly. and I think it probably is true that we are much more comfortable with seeing you know comfortable in quotes I guess but it doesn't seem as sort of um, out there or surprising to see a woman go through psychological torment and have a total breakdown as a man yeah and it's hard to think of movies where because in a lot of these examples um, there's like men who go through horrible, horrible experiences, but don't necessarily, they're not like reduced to kind of gibbering wrecks or like, you know, screaming. Catatonic states. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I think they probably are closer to uh, Daniel Kaluuya and Get Out, who goes through an experience which, you know, if he'd been a female character, probably would have led to that kind of like total breakdown. But because he's a man, he doesn't have to do that. Yeah. So, yeah, it's interesting. And I think Mother probably would have been a more interesting film if the main character had been a man, to be honest. Yeah. <laughs> Why can they've got um should be a gay relationship and like uh Jennifer Lawrence's character should just be a man. And I think the whole movie would have been more interesting, although you know, the the birth sequence would have obviously been harder to achieve. <laughs> <laughs> Why not? Why can't it be immaculate conception, you know? <laughs> That's true, yeah. The fucking the movie so goes completely nuts, the, you know. By the Bible or whatever. Why yeah, not? Yeah. Why not? A man can fucking give birth Why to Why to baby. pull your punches, Aronofsky? That's true. We also got a correspondence from Joe Borges. He says, Hi, Sam and Danny. Have you heard much about this 2018 release? It was James Cameron's pet project until making a dozen Avatar movies began taking up all his time. So we've got Robert Rodriguez instead. And he linked us to the IMD page for... What's it called? It is called Alita Battle Angel. Alita Battle Angel. He says, Cast looks amazing, including that guy from Starship Troopers who does the same face in all of his IMDb photos. And your favourite dinner lady seducer, Ed Skrein until he wokes out of yet another comic book adapted Japanese character role. He adds, I'm very excited. Hopefully it won't be another Hollywood ghost in the shell. And then he also adds, I don't know if you're anime fans, but the original... Uh, OVA? I don't actually know what that is. I don't know what that means, Joe. Adapted from the manga is here. Well worth an hour. Did so there's obviously an animation version. I didn't you watch it. I didn't watch I mean, it. I watched like 11 movies this week, you know. I can't be watching this other anime. I've got things to do. Yeah. I've got to wash, you <laughs> I've got know. i to watch. <laughs> Um, yeah, thanks Thanks for pointing us towards this, uh, towards this project, Jay. It'll be interesting to see Robert Rodriguez take on, you know, something with, I guess, a bit of scale. Isn't his thing to usually make movies in about three weeks and he does all the roles himself and he also, like, you know, cooks and fucks and, you know, does all this sort of... He's like stuff. one of those 90s directors, like Tim Burton or something, where the first decade of his career is much better than the subsequent one. Yeah. I don't know. I really like Robert Rodriguez's early stuff. I'm a big fan of Spy Kids and uh, those El Mariachi movies. And so it I, feels like he kind of ran out of ideas or something. There. Yeah, I think he like you know he's a very capable action director and he also like put a sequence together. But like you said, I feel like post Grindhouse, even though that was a massive flop, he's like doubled down on the very thing which proved to have no audience. Yeah. So he's like, yeah. I'm gonna make a bunch of Mariachi. No, sorry, I'm gonna make a bunch of Machete movies for that random trailer I made, and I'm gonna have a whole TV network that just makes Grindhouse movies, even though this weird mid noughties idea completely failed. Yeah. I don't care. <laughs> You're gonna watch the From Dust to uh, Dawn TV show. Yeah. Yeah. You know, whatever. But um, yeah. I mean. I think From Dust or Dawn is like one of his best directed movies and I'd be you know interested to see him direct someone else's script. Do you want to hear a little bit about Battle Absolutely. Angel Alita? The series is set in the post-apocalyptic future and focuses on Alita, a cyborg who has lost all memories and is found in a garbage heap by a cybernetics doctor who rebuilds and takes care of her. She discovers that there is one thing she remembers, the legendary cyborg martial art Panzer Kunst, which leads her to becoming a hunter warrior or bounty hunter. I guess Hunter Warrior is like the title in the Alita universe of a bounty hunter. Right. The story traces Alita's attempts to rediscover her past and the characters whose lives she impacts on her journey. The manga series is continued in Battle Angel Alita Last Order. It's um, <laughs> <laughs> a key key thing that I read at the end. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like a good mix of all this shit. You know, it you sounds want to like cyborgs. Yeah, yeah. Fighting. I can see why uh, James Cameron was keen to do it. Yeah. I'd be interested to see because I wonder like how much... I didn't see it, but Ghost in the Shell, by your reckoning, yeah, I mean, was well, terrible. There's very, there's very clearly a lot of similarities here, like an amnesiac character with like no past who's a badass and is also a cyborg. Yeah, but I just wonder if we're, like, we're a bit past that sort of James Cameron depiction of like a female heroine, which is like a sort of guy with tits. 
uh, yeah, which is like, like you know, um, just the ultimate badass, like the even more, badass. more manly than that's the man. right. A woman can be a cyborg. Yeah, yeah, that sort of thing. Well, um, uh, the the sort of I mean, if Ghost in the Shell is any kind of model for how these things are usually done, it's like I think it's less like that, but it's more like a sort of badass hero who you can also jerk off to. Yeah, I mean, like is the the ultimate, the ultimate. Yeah, because <laughs> I think the you know she's quite sexualized in the Ghost in the Shell movie, and. Uh, Judging from the cover of Battle Angel Alita Volume 1 in the uh, Wikipedia page, I imagine it's probably a similar thing, like a sexy cyborg creature, you know, like the sort of thing that you would put up on your bedroom wall if you were a, a nerdy, horny teen boy. Which we are not. Which we're, we're not, and we're, never were. you got a poster of Seven Samurai here, exactly. and a poster of uh, Don Draper. Yeah, no reactionary would ever have a poster of Don Draper on his wall, that's impossible. <laughs> um... But thank you, Joe, for sending us that way. But yeah, no, we'll definitely, we'll definitely keep an eye on it. I mean, anything with Scrine, got to watch it. Love Scrine. Good love egg. Scrine. I mean, I'm, I'm genuinely a bit disappointed about him waking out of that uh, Hellboy thing because I want, I want a bit of Scrine on my screen. Some, some Scrine time. <laughs> uh, yes. Uh, and finally, Chris, Olivia, and Dan all point us in the direction of this great tweet. We got we, we got sent this by in the space of about like thirty minutes. Everybody sent us, yeah, this thing. which is uh, from a gentleman called Al Giordano. His tweet was related to the passing of Harry Dean Stanton, the legendary character actor who died this week. He said, Harry Dean Stanton, 1926 to 2017. He lived 91 years and got to play a role in an Avengers movie. So much win. Uh, Al Giordano, I read his Twitter bio. He's a journalist, publisher, organizer, musician, chef, back in Mexico after building a tunnel to bypass Trump's wall. And he works for the School of Authentic Journalism. And his pin tweet is of Obama singing Amazing Grace. Yeah, Make of that what you will. I'm vaguely aware of this, of this guy as somebody who's uh, popped up before. I think mainly to be sort of mocked by like, <laughs> left-wingers on Twitter as a sort of lame liberal guy. Yeah, I was very surprised that this was like an old guy. I thought it was like a sort of young like Marvel fanboy who just knew him as the guy from Avengers. And right, he's yeah. like, oh, that cool old guy. The capping of any career, a three-second role in an Avengers movie. But he's obviously like, I don't know how he could be, you know, a middle-aged man and not be aware of any more roles that he played. You know, he's an alien, Repo Man, Paris, Texas. The way this is phrased <laughs> is as if, like, that's literally the first thing he actually did in the film business. <laughs> 91 years. And he just snuck that in there before he died. You know, just a few years, 86 years old or whatever. And he's like... <laughs> they put him in there. What a hero. Thank God. Woo. Woo. What a guy. Anyway. Anyway, thanks to everybody who sent us that tweet. I enjoyed reading it. Every time it was sent to us. Thank you for all the correspondence this week. It's, you've really come through for us, you guys. You guys have really come through in a Thank big way. Thank you so much. Yeah. You sound, you sound a bit sarcastic saying that, but... I want to sound quite sincere as I say thank you for that. Uh, I find it trouble. I find it troubling to be sincere. I, I'm <laughs> I have trouble sounding sincere. I feel like well, a naturally sarcastic lilt to my voice. Uh, thank oh, God. great to see you. Yeah. Oh, I don't like that at no, all. But I am. No, I am. You know, I'm, yeah. I'm pleased to be here. It's a good thing that I'm not like that at all. I always sound like everything I say comes straight from the heart. I've always yeah, got like Mark. Yeah. I've got a trembling lip and a single tear running down my face. Just so you know, I really mean it. You're like time. Mark Wahlberg. I mean, you say it's sincere. I know, man. Yeah, man. So sincere, man. Thanks for the correspondence, man. Hey, thanks for the correspondence, guys. I really appreciate it. Really appreciate thanks that. Thanks a lot. Okay. Okay. Let's move on now. All right. Superhero films announced. Casting rumors leaking out. M. Night Shyamalan's film is hated. Paul Thomas Anderson's is fated. Meryl Streep's Oscar tipped. Matt Damon's in a viral vid. Michael Bay's made a mint. That's the news that's fit to print. Watchmen. You're probably familiar with this uh, seminal comic book work. It's uh, on one of Time's 100 Greatest Novels or something, the uh, one graphic novel to come on there, and was recently adapted into a movie by uh, Zack Snyder. When did that come out? 2009 or something like that? No, it's like 2006. 2006, wow, it's really a long time ago. Yeah, and everyone was super excited about that, uh, and it got a slightly mixed reception because it was very visually faithful to the graphic novel, but was made by somebody who just doesn't understand it, (laughs) (laughs) pretty much. So a little bit like when the Golden Compass came out and people uh, felt like it didn't really capture the spirit of the His Dark Materials trilogy, there's definitely been an appetite since to see it tackled again in a, in a better way. It's more faithful to the material. And Watchmen has been greenlit for a TV pilot by HBO, which is pretty exciting. That's probably like this, exactly the sort of thing that Watchmen aficionados would like to happen if they want to see it on screen. Well, it's quite an unwieldy tome, so, it, it you know... But it's, the, it's quite episodic. Yeah, absolutely. It's 12 yeah. chapters. 12 chapters and everything. And so. the movie, by necessity, had to cut out a lot of stuff, which yeah. kind of defeated the point in a way. 
Yeah, and almost by needing to be distinct from the film, you feel like they would have to hew tonally. You know, if you're going to, it's got to be different, so it might as well hew closer to what the book is, tonally speaking. The guy who's helming this TV adaptation is Damon Lindelof, who's one of J.J. Abrams' collaborators, isn't he? And he wrote Lost and he um, wrote Prometheus. Yeah, so that's, and, I mean, Prometheus is a fucking shit script. So I think so. Uh, he's hated by fanboys, but then apparently The Leftovers, which was the most recent TV effort, was very good. Oh, is that Lindelof thing? So I think maybe he's redeemed himself in the eyes of uh, people, you know, who hated the Lost finale. Oh, uh, yeah. Uh, according to Empire, virtually nothing is known about this version. Brilliant. That's what Empire says. Anyway, I don't know if that scoop is uh, is accurate. Though to work as a TV series that would run multiple seasons, one would imagine they would have to expand on events from the comic. That's what they say. But I don't know. I mean, they, it might as well just might just be a single series, right? Single of twelve episodes. Twelve episodes. That's about the right amount. Do you think it's like it's worth doing because the movie is so visually faithful? Do you think it's worth doing a TV series that is more faithful to the spirit of the book, but would also kind of look like the movie because it is so drawn from the, the material? Well, the thing about the comic book is that it's like a comic book about comic books and like investigates. Uh, heroes and it's very 80s in the way comic books were where they took all the colorful characters from the 60s and then they're like these got a, these are real people now batman's now all fucked up yeah, and yeah, weird yeah everyone's got guilt and freudian complexes and the visual style is very it's like all browns and greens and purples deliberately to delineate it from the sort of um colorful pop-up you know primary colors of the 60s so i don't know how you do that in cinematic terms like i think it's it's probably a healthier environment to make a Watchmen movie just because there's been more comic book films so it can comment on the genre in a way that it was like quite an early comic book movie 10 years ago but now the market's so saturated by it yeah that you can sort of comment on comic yeah. book genre in a cinematic version does that make sense no 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 that's a, i think that's definitely true i think it's i think it's made more awkward by the fact that the original movie and the subsequent comic book film was made by Zack snyder are visually this kind of depressing like washed <laughs> out uh everyone is like you know is miserable in a kind of way that that muddies the waters a bit in terms of com- comic book movie culture yeah yeah i can under- i can imagine how you could do a um something that was riffing on the uh, colorful and relatively like peril free world of marvel movies and it's also like you know so like corporate and uh, and everything like that but i don't know i mean i hope they hope they can find like an angle on it as you say it's so specific to a particular time when it was made and so particular to um yeah comic a- books like the medium of comic books that like this has to have a take of some kind because otherwise it's just what the movie was which is like look at this cool group of wacky characters and they're like gritty adventures yeah yeah i guess maybe watchmen is kind of written in the shadow of like a looming apocalypse it's like a lot of 80s paranoia in it mm. and i guess that's sort of come full circle like you know with North Korea and, you know, Trump and stuff. And, like, in the book, it's, like, Nixon on his second term. There was briefly going to be a version directed by Paul Greengrass, which was going to be set in the present day, as if the sort of history of the book continued. So it's like, if Nixon had gone for two terms, how that would affect history, which sounds like a kind of cooler take in a way. Yeah, I mean, I actually hope that that is what they do. Yeah. I think that if you really respect the material enough to want to tell something that has an equivalent amount of, like, cultural commentary or impact to it, then you can't just make some kind of thing fossilized in the 80s that's a comment on something that's passed on. Yeah. You'd have to make something that's new. Like, it wouldn't make sense, really, to set it in the 80s, in a yeah. way. Otherwise, it's just, like, you know, going to end up being a, 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 a shallow an effort as Snyder's thing, which, like, you know, no, nobody thought that movie was saying anything because it wasn't. And even if you did something that was more, you know, true to the spirit of the book, whatever, if it's still stuck with those exact characters and exact, that exact look and that exact period and everything then it's just, uh, you know, won't feel like it has anything to offer except, like, coolness. Mm. So I hope that they're bold with it. Be bold. Be bold. Be, be brave. Be bold and love. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Talking of adaptations of comic books, 
Taika Waititi, who previously made films that cost about a pound and has now hit the big time with Thor Ragnarok. He was a bit of a surprising choice, but like every single trailer and bit of information about it has been People met. love it. People are loving it. And people are very excited for it. It looks like he's found a way to uh, inject his sensibility and make it work within a studio system. And I guess off the back of the impending huge success of Thor Ragnarok, he is apparently in talks to direct a live-action version of Akira, which if you haven't seen, is a seminal late 80s anime based on several tomes of a manga comic about a group of biker teens in Neo-Tokyo, a sort of future, very 80s-inflicted cyberpunk future, and about a... Uh, Some kind of government project. Government project, psychic kids, experimentation, nuclear war, all those big 80 themes, 80 weighty themes. (laughs) Um, And it's been muted for ages. Like Hollywood has tried to get off the ground many times with directors as varied as like the Hughes brothers and uh, Jean Colissera, Justin Lin. Apparently Jordan Peele was uh, muted at one point. I guess is he muted to everything these days because Get Out is so successful yeah. they want him for every film was DiCaprio attached to Akira at some point yeah well? something like that yeah. it's like one of those projects has been around for so long that everybody at some point has had a meeting about it yeah but it's an interesting one I guess it's similar to Ghost in the Shell or this Battle Alita thing where it's so specifically Japanese that a live action American remake would have to change so much that it might defeat the p- purpose of making it. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> like, well, uh, it's like, I think it's this is kind of what we were talking about both with that and with Watchmen, that it's these things that are made at a very specific time, they got a very distinctive aesthetic, and they're yeah. iconic because they evoke another period, mm. and now is different. And it's like, culturally speaking, to make a very, very general sweeping comment, we are not, uh, I don't think culture currently in movies or like in the arts generally is kind of getting to grips with the times that we're living in now no and is that there's a i it's not really being nailed anywhere and this kind of grasping after iconic things from the past that felt like they did capture something <laughs> about the times that they lived in uh is like it's kind of an admission of failure in a way yeah i mean th- there is like that that is the central problem with akira is that like is that really you know as meaningful now if you just transplant this thing that was you know, very influential on the Matrix or whatever, and it's like still a very absolutely yeah. movie. But is it just going to be kitsch now? Yeah, and also yeah. like eighties sci-fi is so kind of specific and hasn't didn't successfully predict the future. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know? So it's like it's like it's like retro nostalgic sci-fi, isn't it? Like yeah, exactly. Just like that. the digital revolution was never anticipated in cyberpunk films. I guess like William Gibson sort of had a handle on the internet and stuff. Well, it sort of is like, in Ghost, Ghost in the Shell kind of is about that. But. Yeah, I just mean there's like a, there's very tactile worlds where the idea of information everywhere isn't quite prevalent. You know, there's yeah. still, it's like the 50s, but with cooler bikes and yeah, guns. Yeah, well, and, it's, Akira, Akira is certainly like that. And Taika Waititi, it's quite interesting because, you know, before Thor, you'd be like, how does his sort of twee, very New Zealand sense of humour fit in? But it's obviously... They obviously think he can just do anything now. He can do anything. Yeah. It'd be quite funny if you've seen the original, just like a lot of exploding, a lot of screaming, very Japanese in its like extreme overall emotional It's it's very melodramatic, you know. And, you know, Taika Waititi is a super low-key, almost like twee at times thing, so... I I mean, I'd be very interested... It sounds quite random, doesn't it? I mean, I'd rather him than just you know justin lynn or whatever who i imagine would make quite a sort of similar to the movie version yeah yeah yeah, yeah. but um yeah why not why not <laughs> why, why not, not? Yeah, sounds no. nuts why yeah. not we'll keep an eye on it see how that develops Ooh, time for a break from all the film chat have a cup of tea maybe make a quick snack and telephone friends so you know where she's at right that's enough now back to film chat the Villainess. This is a huge South Korean hit which is made onto UK shores with a mixture of bone-crunching action and overwrought emotions. It is uh, directed by Jung Bun-jil, which is probably not how you pronounce the name, but that's the best I can do, Jung. Uh, and the plot is, is a story of a ruthless female assassin named Suk-hee, played by Kim Ok-bin, who from an early age has been taught to kill. She becomes a sleeper agent for South Korea's intelligence agency who promises her her freedom after 10 years of service. However, two men from her past make an unexpected appearance in her life, bringing out dark secrets from her past. Not, the, not the best written Wikipedia synopsis. Here's a clip of a uh, sword fire on some motorbikes. <laughs> Oh, 
even better in audio form, <laughs> I would say. Yeah. So we saw this at the Prince Charles. Uh, it def- I think basically my review would be it delivered on what yeah, it promised. It's if if the, it's what you would want to see from such a film, like crazy action. There's a lot of fighting and shooting, you know, stabbings. Absolutely in- impossible to follow plot. <laughs> Incomprehensible plot. Incomprehensible plot. I would describe the film as kind of like over the top in a yeah. lot of ways. Yeah. Like the action scenes are over the top. The opening is like a sort of um, point of view series of stabbings, kind of like a much more coherent, well-executed Hulk or Henry sort of style sequence by the director who I think has probably played way too many video games. Yeah. And, uh, but very kind of relentless in the way it keeps on building. You know, if if there's a window, somebody will go through it at some point. It's that kind of movie. But it's also over the top in how overwrought it is. And it's got something which uh, I don't know if it's just me generalizing, but it just feels so Korean in its kind of ping-ponging tone. And there will be many scenes of people dying in slow ways, people crying about it. Yeah, yeah. And then it'll gear shift to something totally sort of twee. And there's like a whole meet cute section in the middle for about 20 minutes when it's this kind of rom-com. Yeah, that really goes on for a long time as well, like the romance stuff. And I like I wasn't realized how invested you were supposed to be in it, but I believe... You were supposed to be invested in it. Yes. Yeah. And it's also got this completely all over the place kind of flashback structure where it is constantly flashing forward and backwards in time in a way which uh, at the beginning feels justified, but towards the end it feels a bit like, why not? You know, like we've come this far. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it is a action movie first and foremost, and it very much delivers on that front. And that um, bike chase, which you just heard, is pretty, pretty, pretty cool. Pretty good. And it's... um does a lot of one take action sequences which are obviously been stitched together digitally but very well done and whatever boredom i had in the overall emotions dissipated when people started stabbing each other the risk of saying something really banal do you think <laughs> like there's something that is interesting in the way that um uh, these kinds of movies or these stories which have such heightened emotions they're not really dramatically justified by how invested the audience is in it. <laughs> but it's, it's as though you're not really supposed to feel the way that the characters feel, but you're just supposed to be entertained by the level of emotions they're showing. You yeah, see what I mean? yeah, yeah. It's not really important to you, but it's just fun. It's another fun thing to watch. It's like people absolutely flipping the fuck out. Yeah, and exactly. Like, yeah, and there's so there's you, a lot. Who wants of, to see a mumblecore action movie? Yeah, yeah, you yeah. Want to see a melodrama action? But there's movie. there's 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 so many things in the films that are supposed to feel like payoffs, but. I think I was too confused about who, what people's relationships were to everyone else to like completely understand what's going on. There's obviously a lot of mystery and like twists and turns and like people aren't what they seem and all that kind of shit is like all over the film. But it's a bit baffling, especially because there's a kind of plastic surgery element to it. So <laughs> people switching people faces, switching faces and stuff. So that was extra, extra bizarre and confusing. But yeah, it was good. I think like it has an ultimately quite a satisfying structure in that it slows down like really substantially in like the last two-thirds well last like middle third of the film or whatever yeah. the third of the four quarters or something uh, but then like by the end it brings it all home in in, a, in like a sequence which is probably the most spectacular one in the movie and then you know then you're satisfied you'd be, yeah you'd be happy i also feel like as i mentioned in my introduction it's like a film about a woman who's like constantly doing the bidding of other people and like manipulated and by the end she has her most agency in the final 20 minutes and it's like it's time to deliver some vengeance you're like yeah. okay here we go movie Bring it on home. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Take yeah. over a car, jump on a bus, murder 20 people. Yeah. Kill Just, those, you know. She murders a, a <laughs> shitload of people in this film. And on a slightly less important note, adorable uh, toddler actress such a, Se- scene so stealing little Korean girl yeah the best scene in the movie is her just like eating rice and talking to this guy <laughs> she's talking to this guy with just a mouth full of rice that she just will not chew or swallow it's the most it's adorable thing great. it's so good and then she's like I'm full and sleepy and just toddles off she to have a nap off. it's lovely brilliant she was the true star of the villainess yeah just... I think like if this kind of film appeals to you then I recommend it you know, it was fun. It, it was, was fun. kind of a blast. Perhaps a little over long, but a little bit long. Okay. Everything was a bit over. Yeah. I would say <laughs> overall, over long, over the top, but it delivered. Looks like Sam's got a film to review. He's just getting ready now. Hey Sam, here's a few tips for you that I hope are gonna help you out. You gotta come prepared, try not to rush, speak directly into the mic. Um, don't sort of use filler words too much and try to avoid talking total shit. Okay, start reviewing now. 
All right, I went to see a real film, not that stupid uh, made-up fancy shit for children, but a documentary about real life. Uh, Dispossession, cool. the great social housing swindle. This is an independent feature, a documentary about the well about social housing in the UK, narrated by Maxine Peake and directed by a guy called Paul Singh. I assume that is how his surname is pronounced. It's just spelled S N G. Here is a little clip of the trailer, which I think gives you a pretty good sense of you know the tone of the movie and what it's about. They're going to regenerate it, which means total demolition. And when it very first started, it was a case of nothing will happen without your approval. Well, that was lie number one on day one, and it's never changed. We've got councils of all kinds across London who are trying to demolish traditional council estates. They're actually destroying communities. It was Mrs. Thatcher whose right to buy scheme was a vote winner for families like the Pattersons. She gave them the title deeds to their council house. They gave her tea in return. Don't you think this is lovely? The right to buy was probably the most popular policy ever introduced by Conservative government. So uh, I was quite keen to see this film because I'm very aware of social housing as an issue in the country. And it, but it's the sort of thing that I feel like I don't know enough about. Everybody talks about the housing crisis all the time. And it's, you know, continually in and out of the news, as are scandals about local councils mishandling regenerations, demolishing estates and replacing them with luxury flats and people being too uh, cozy with developers and you know crushing uh, regular folk uh, so I was aware of this very much as a phenomenon and the controversies around it but I felt like I was not that educated in it so you know I was I was keen to go see it and it really delivered basically what I wanted to get out of it and I and anybody who's interested in this as a subject and wants to learn more about it I think you should definitely go see because I think it's a very very good overview of this as an issue and is, uh, has a lot of, you know, meaty statistics and facts and stuff that you can even, you know, tell your friends about. But it's also just a very slickly made film. I don't know what I was expecting necessarily, but I, but having recently watched that Dennis Skinner film. Sure. Which you know, another sort little... of contemporary political British documentary, yeah, which, you know, did feel a little bit like a fan movie. And this is, you know, the sort of thing that, well, it's like a professionally made movie. Yeah, yeah, sure. <laughs> I, I know what you mean. That sounds like slightly, you know, faint praise or whatever, but it's really, really slickly put together. They have a huge amount of access. They got like a great selection of interviewees. Nicholas Sturgeon is in it. Um, well, uh, a lot of different people, <laughs> Dawn Foster and uh, various, like a lot of familiar faces, uh, experts, like academics, um, activists, and uh, also regular people, politicians, people who, you know, at the front line of this and like um, all sorts of stuff. It focuses on London, but it doesn't only do uh, London, which I think is quite important because this isn't only a London problem. They also go to uh, Glasgow and they have some stuff in Nottingham as well. Um, one of the things that I found really striking about it is how beautifully photographed it is. Uh, they have most of it is basically people who were interviewed talking about different issues and it's compartmentalized into various different estates and different levels of problems uh, but, and, and as they talk there's just footage of the estates that they're talking about or you know things to illustrate the subject but because the the movie is basically entirely that there's a lot of urban photography in it and it ends up being really quite a striking and beautiful portrait of inner city estates in in various different places and it really felt like quite a refreshing way to look at them because I think if you imagine, you know, stock footage of an estate, that's most usually used to illustrate some kind of newsnight report about deprivation or about regeneration or whatever. But like one of the arguments of the film that they mention is the fact that the demonization of council states as a place to live yeah, yeah. and the, uh, the fact that they are no longer, you know, when they were, council housing was first constructed uh, like after the war when they embarked on this huge program of mass council building it was seen as aspirational to live in one and it wasn't only supposed to be where you know the poorest people who can't afford their own home live it was like uh, middle class people or like teachers and nurses yeah and stuff like that it's like the state provides you with housing and it was you know it's an aspirational thing to get into one and that now that the council state has become basically synonymous with like you know where you are swept off to if you can't make it on in life or whatever right someone in the movie compares it to how people think about it the way they do about like a and e it's like you go there in an emergency and then you get out once you're once you're done or whatever and the way that the movie is shot i think does a it strikes a really good balance between like it doesn't overly romanticize it because it is a real problem because they have suffered from decades of underinvestment 
and there are problems with the state of you know council states of course um so it's not like these are beautiful places that you know are doing great but it's also not like this is a disastrous den of iniquity that anyone should want to escape or whatever and and it ends up being quite a, a sort of nuanced picture of how these how these places look yeah and yeah and quite attractive it's just like a cool it's a cool looking film um basically the 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 thing that the movie explains is what they what they call the managed decline of social housing in in the uk over successive governments has led to a position where there isn't nearly enough of it uh there's enormously long waiting list what there is is falling into disrepair there's no public money for it and local authorities are finding it essentially too easy to do deals with developers to regenerate places uh, which essentially means demolishing what's there and partnering with private developers to replace it and one of the points made in the movie is that there's nothing necessarily wrong with partnering with private developers but it is a problem if what is being done is like demolishing people's homes scattering them to the four corners and then replacing it with things that they cannot afford to buy yeah and it doesn't even seem to be particularly cost effective for local councils and they do some quite uh, striking calling out <laughs> yeah so council gets it in the neck lambeth gets it in the neck as well and also glasgow to an extent which saw one of the biggest transfers of housing stock out of public hands like in europe or something um at some at some point when glasgow but glasgow doesn't have any council housing anymore at all they've transferred wow. all of their housing to a uh, private well they cre- it was a it was a newly created uh, private company the uh, Glasgow Housing Association, which now owns all of the social housing in Glasgow. Blimey. Yeah. So, I don't know. I, I, I found it, like, nothing was that surprising because you were aware of this as a problem. But it, all that material was so well marshaled and it really did outrage me, which is, I guess, what it's supposed to do. And it's it's sad, you know? It's like, it's like a, an emotional watch, really, because it's such an outrage and it's like a systemic failure that takes in you know like polit- like the political system yeah successive governments the whole media which has completely failed these people and, and regular people does, and it doesn't there's no reason for it to be that way does it offer uh you know like what it would do like does it have a solution like it's basically like we just need to build huge swathes of social housing well, yeah immediately. The, the solution is yeah exactly i mean the solution is not particularly you know it's not a mystery it's yeah. not a hard problem to solve there needs to be like serious public funding for housing they need to build a lot more housing there needs to be much like uh, uh stricter rules on uh, deals with property developers and stuff like that it's not like a hard thing it's just there needs to be the will to do it yeah like uh and it's one of the odd things about it as an issue is that it's so frequently discussed like you know how do we what are we going to do about this and it's like just build fucking houses <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> um and yeah so I, I i really recommend i really recommend seeking it out there are a number of screenings on the website dispossessionfilm.com uh, you can go there and there, there's a bunch of them all throughout October and November in various different places. And yeah, you should you should watch it. Even, even if you feel like it's preaching to the choir, I think it's just like a really good piece of work, really well made. And check it out. I'll do it. Sam and Danny both watched a film and they decided to record a few opinions on the things they saw. You're going to hear them in a moment or so. There could be angry disagreements, but their views are normally quite close. A joint review shared between two podcast brothers. Do they let one another speak or do they interrupt each other? The light is on, the guys are in, so let the chat begin. Start talking now. Mother, the new the film everybody's talking about, and most people seem to despise it. <laughs> the new film by Darren Aronofsky, uh, much anticipated. He's a, um, a very interesting director. He makes very divisive uh, movies. He most recently made Noah, uh, which uh, made quite a lot of money, right? Yeah, it was a like big a, hit. A lot of but... Christians liked it in the US, but yeah, it was a bit critically divisive. And prior to that, made Black Swan, and he's now made this psychological horror movie called Mother, which is probably kind of like in the in the realm of Black Swan, but. Uh, you know, goes to some very different places. Kind of pulls like together a lot of things he's been doing with his other movies. Feels like a yeah. bit of a sort of magnum opus of his stuff. Of all of his interests in kind yeah. of one film. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it stars Jennifer Lawrence and Javier Bardem. And it's set in a house. Jennifer Lawrence is uh, and Javier Bardem living in this big house together. It's still like under construction. It's almost finished. And their marriage is kind of tested when um, Ed Harris, this random guy, turns up to stay with them. And Jennifer Lawrence doesn't really want people disturbing their kind of marital bliss and happy about them is very welcoming of others. 
um, and he finds that new people inspire him as an artist to keep creating as he's been going through a bit of a, a rut. He's in, you know, writer's block or whatever. And Michelle Pfeiffer then turns up and gradually more people turn up in the house and Jennifer Lawrence not very happy about it. Not happy. And things develop from there. Here is a clip of Jennifer Lawrence having a chat with Michelle Pfeiffer, who's asking her some rather invasive questions about her opinions on having a child. Why don't you want kids? Excuse me? I saw how you reacted earlier. I know what it's like when you're just starting out and you think you have all the time in the world. And, you know, you're not going to be so young forever. Have kids. Then you'll be creating something together. This is all just... setting. Mean. Whoa, dial it back, Michelle. That's not cool, Uncool. I I think we saw this film in quite a good setting. So you saw it at uh, the Pear Complex in an absolute packed out screening. So much that I was craning my neck to see this, to see the screen a little bit. And it's a lot of the discussion about the movie has centered on the audience reception to it. It's one of only a handful of films to have received an F from uh, Cinema School, which is a kind of polling service that looks at audience reactions to things. And uh, yeah, so it seems to be pretty much just like, so the critically it's got a mix of like raves and the opposite of raves, hatchet jobs. Yeah. <laughs> But it was fun seeing it with loads of people because I kind of felt like, uh, for one thing, there was a surprising number of laughs that it didn't look like it was going to be at all comic when you watched the yeah. the trailer for it. But like people were kind of laughing. And then, but by the end, because the film goes so big and like so um, wild and hysterical at the end, mm. I don't know. I feel like everyone was kind of shuffling out, kind of a bit poleaxed. Yeah, my experience of watching it is that by the end, I wasn't really sure if I would enjoyed it. Because I was enjoying the first half and the second half is so relentless and over the top that it's almost like oppressive. Yeah, it is. Yeah. And uh, so it's good that I've had a few days to deflate in which way a few days in which I watched 12 other films to uh, (laughs) compare it to. And I definitely like it's a pleasing oddity in modern cinema. And that's like a sort of mainstream movie with with the biggest star in the world. And it is totally nuts and one man's vision and it's you know it's cool that it exists no matter what you think about it i'm i don't know if i like it i kind of admire it and there are things i really enjoyed about it i think it's definitely more successful in the first half where it kind of um similar to black swan which itself was indebted to the work of roman polanski particularly as film repulsion i'm a film critic i know these things which is just kind of mining the kind of existential dread out of uh, domestic settings and it's the kind of movie where every time someone picks up a glass you think it's going to be dropped and broken and you're kind of on edge and I also think like the scenes of uh, Michelle Pfeiffer as you heard it does a really good job of that kind of hell as other people yeah. social anxiety in a horror film a bit like um, Get Out That's those, those sort of scenes where it's just like incredibly awkward and uh, as a middle class British man there's nothing worse than a bad small talk you know it's like nails on chalkboard <laughs> yeah yeah it do, it, no it does all that stuff really really well I think that the, the basic structure of it it lends itself well to both horror and comedy it's kind of structured a bit like a sketch yeah where people keep entering and like it's just they're more and more rude <laughs> and uh, more and more annoying and listen to her less and less and her frustrations throughout the film are pretty much remain the same from beginning to end but it's just ramped up the film yeah. is just like an ongoing crescendo with little dips in it. And yeah, I kind of, I, I had a similar experience watching it to you, I think, whereas like for certainly for the first half of the movie, at least, it's quite enjoyable because you get into the rhythm of it. And I was just kind of enjoying seeing what the next, like, you know what's going to happen next? More people going to come in the house. <laughs> it's going to really piss Jennifer Lawrence off. How's she going to deal with it? And it's so packed with odd little touches and little bits of surrealism. There's a, there's a sort of dreamlike quality to it, uh, which really takes over the whole movie towards the end but like uh, the beginning when you're not quite sure how naturalistic the film is supposed to be it's just full of interesting little things and you feel like you're definitely being taken on a journey by somebody who's got a very specific idea the movie is kind of an exercise in relentlessly pursuing a single idea to like absolute destruction you could not take it further than yeah exactly yeah very true and yeah it's it's a film that definitely requires a bit of time to think about because you, you realize by the end, like, uh, the sort of symbolism and allegorical nature of it takes over completely. And then that leaves you with a very different perspective on the movie than you would have had if the movie just ended after halfway through. Yeah. When, you, when you're thinking about like, the social aspects of it or like the actual interpersonal like aspects of it. And yeah. then, you, but then you come away and you're like, but what did that mean? 
Instead, you, instead you're just obsessed with the question of what, re- what represented what. Yeah, well, it's this interesting mix where the story is kind of allegorical as you say so it kind of removes you slightly because you're like you're trying to work out what everything everything represents something exactly but at the same time um even though the story is kind of allegorical the execution is very visceral so like it kind of pushes you out with the story but then sucks you back in with the sound design the editing you know when i was chopping something i'm like are they gonna cut their fucking hand off yeah you know what i mean all that stuff is so well done it's a really really well made film the sound design is fantastic the performances, I think, are really good. Jennifer Lawrence is really, really good. Basically, every shot is either of her face or over her shoulder as she looks at things. And that central kind of model is just really, really well executed. I think, like, my main misgiving with the film is that it has... Because it has this very um, overbearing, like, symbolism to it, and because it leaves you kind of seeing the movie like some kind of illustrated manuscript to be decoded... Yeah. Or some kind of thing that makes you just wonder where what everything is a stand in for something else. That that ends up being a slightly limiting way to think about the movie because the central ideas I don't think are rich enough to reward all the time you spend Googling what did this mean? Yeah. And I agree. As like there's 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 various readings uh, of the movie, but not like that many. There's basically a, a very heavy biblical allegory that's laid over the film that either you'll get watching it or like once it's explained to you, it's like, oh yeah, of course. And there's also an environmental message which is just extraordinarily heavy handed <laughs> um, and also a kind of feminist reading, uh, which is what I thought it was for most of the movie and which is, you know, the thing I like the best about it really, yeah. which is the, the kind of idea of the way that society treats different kinds of, uh, prioritizes basically different kinds of roles differently and male ones over female ones. And uh, the Javier Bardem character is this artist who doesn't really do anything, but society worships him. Uh, and she is a uh, works incredibly hard and like does everything for him and is like spends the whole movie tidying up and is also created the house that he lives in and you know is not rewarded for yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. And so like I mean you know that's a relatively basic idea. It's not like some sort of revolutionary feminist idea or whatever, but like it was still you know a good thing like at the core of the movie I felt. But then like that that is kind of flooded over yeah everything everything explodes into the quite like brutal horrifying allegorical stuff towards the end and then it's just like you know was it really worth it you know it's it's such a single-minded vision and it is rather i think it is fair to describe the movie as pretentious and uh so yeah so it's like it's not to say that it's bad or whatever but for a magnum opus, I don't know if at the heart of it, it's, there's that much going on. No, no, I, yeah, I, I agree with that. I think that the best way to, or like the most generous way to look at the movie is as a kind of a psychological roller coaster trip thing, yeah. as an experience movie, you know, rather than as some kind of text to be analyzed. And as an, as an experience, it's really kind of grips you and leaves you like exhausted, and it's extremely well made. And it's like pulled off in a in a very competent fashion, and you know, very admirable for doing that. So it's kind of, I think it's kind of worth watching because, as you say, like there's not many movies that come out that are like this. But as a argument or as some kind of meaningful spiritual like film or something like that, I don't think it's all that. And and the the, the process of interpreting the text in this kind of what symbolizes what way is a bit like not that rewarding in the end yeah. it's a bit dumb and it's a bit too pleased with itself if it's like but if you recognized you know the toad represents you know the this play or you know any all that kind of stuff it's yeah, just yeah. A bit like so what you know but does allow people to pat themselves on their back when they work it out yeah 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 i know what you mean what's the point of a metaphor you know just say what you mean yeah but exactly <laughs> but it, you know exactly <laughs> I, feel, I do find it funny how it feels like he's like been asked to explain his film more and so than any other. Yeah, but he keeps doing it. I know, That's but it's kind of funny about it. I kind of feel like you know, if it didn't have Jennifer Lawrence in it, or like didn't have named actors in it, and you know, some weird European director made it, no one would ask him like what it means. They'd just like let it be. But like, you yeah. must explain your film, Aronofsky. You've what angered. You what, what have you done? <laughs> uh, I don't know. I mean, yeah, worth seeing. I mean, maybe the conversation you have afterwards is more enlightening, you know, yeah. fun than the actual film. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I think it's it's worth mentioning that like it, it's some of the stuff that happens at the end is probably going to be like too much for some people to stomach. So like if you if you are not you know prepared to see some like relatively awful things, then yeah. I would take you know a note of caution before going into the movie. 
I kind of feel the allegorical nature of it just kind of uh, cushions a lot of that horrible stuff because it's like, well, it's this like, is just means something else. This means something else. This yeah. isn't really happening. This is just, you know, <laughs> that's definitely. I think that's definitely true. But at the same time, it's like if you don't feel like you didn't come at the movie feeling like there's enough going on beneath the surface to have justified it, you're just like, why the fuck would you do that? Yeah, to yeah, me? yeah, yeah. And I think like that explains a lot of the people's response to it is that the movie didn't obviously convince audiences that there was enough like going on to justify why that shit happens and then they're just like well fuck you yeah yeah. so you know i mean that might i think that's a not an illegitimate reaction to it so three stars so yeah well actually yeah i mean i probably would if i had to give it a number of stars i probably would give it three stars (laughs) (laughs) my favorite film stars bridget bardo she's the queen but she wants to be in radio so she starts a podcast with her friends and the terrorists try to stop her but she beats them in the end so we uh don't have anything else to say but uh we are feel a bit bad that we couldn't watch kingsman 2 already because we were we were planning to have that ready to uh rave about how uh, great it is great it is um we had the knives sharpened for that one but we'll have to watch that and review it next week unfortunately but we are very excited champing the bit the reviews have been pretty bad it sounds just absolutely terrible i cannot my mind is so closed going in (laughs) i have never wished a film to be terrible more than this film oh yeah i'm going in if it's like average i'll be so pissed off i want it to be in you know just nails on chalkboard terrible i I have a my my take my pre-seeing the movie take is that because the basically the story of the first film has been completed and this film has no reason to exist anymore but that kind of like rags to riches yeah. tale my fair lady-esque or whatever thing from the first movie is like that's completed so he's now the posh boy you know he's been turned into the posh boy from the from the, the, the murderous Bullingdon club yeah he's entered the Bullingdon club uh, so that's done so like with that completed the movie doesn't really have any reason to exist so like rather than there being this horrible classist like undercurrent to the narrative that won't be there and instead it will just be like lads on tour you know lads on tour one of the things i was thinking about kingsman is it's this kind of synthesis of like lad bible aesthetic of like uh you know lads out on the town drinking and fighting and all that kind of stuff but also like that obsession with gq how to make how to tie a cravat yeah you know how to play poker and all that kind of like that shit the kind of like male trappings from like yeah or like you know the sort of uh, fancy barbers and like, yeah, like yeah. Kind of grooming all the grooming the obsession gambling with grooming. and like smoking and yeah like, yeah you yeah. know if you go and like guess for him on amazon it's like get your dad a cigar cutter and some poker right, chips it's right, like right, well, right, you don't right. know my dad at all yeah it's isn't... like it's like it's a weird holdover because like you know from some lot previous years of masculinity when men were men or whatever men were men remember frank sinatra he was a man yeah <laughs> yeah in like the worst possible way and so it just feels like that perfect obnoxious lad movie can't wait and i think cannot wait that's that's just all it's gonna be that's all it's gonna fucking be with some really lame culture gags about americans versus british people absolutely so join us for that for that epic uh epic take epic hatchet job watch out for it on youtube when it goes viral because we hated it so much so thanks so much for listening and um just yeah. have a just have a great week. Have a great week. I'm gonna watch okay. another like eleven movies. Yeah. Stay breezy. This is my new thing, a new thing to stay. Stay breezy. Stay breezy. Homer, you're crazy. Tell him this is all crazy. Yeah, uh, Homer, I'd like you to remember Matthew seven twenty six. The foolish man who built his house on sand. And you remember Matthew twenty one seventeen, And he left them and went out of the city into Bethany and he lodged there? Yeah. Think about it. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. 
I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.